Thank you, James. Thank you, Bob, as well. Uh, for those of you who don't know Bob on that video, Bob, he's a member of our church, been here for generations, and he could probably tell by his medals he served in, served in the armed forces. So uh, should we just applaud Bob just for who he represents and who he is? Fantastic. Why don't you just take a little stretch out as we get into the Word? You're going to be here for two hours. So just have a little stretch. Now, the Word I'm going to bring you today uh, has been on my mind now for a few weeks. And you'll know I had to cry off a few weeks ago due to sickness and Beck had to fill in. Uh, And I'm sick again, but I'm not COVID positive. So don't worry if any spit lands on you or anything like that. You're not going to catch COVID. I've just got a bit of a cold. Uh, But let me just pray as we dive into this week's Word. Lord Jesus, we just pray for our meeting today. Help us to keep at the forefront of our mind the amazing sacrifices of the men and women that we've thought about in that two-minute silence. And thank you, Lord, that you demonstrated the greatest sacrifice for all of us, that you gave your life so that none should perish. You don't care what colour we are, what creed we are, our ethnicity, our background, our social, economical status, Father. You came so we could live. And we just want to take a moment, Jesus, and thank you from the bottom of our hearts, for all that you have done for us. And we pray as we get into the Word today and we look a little bit at your character and who you are, Lord Jesus, that everything that I communicate is exactly what you want to say. Anything that is of me, Father, we pray is just forgotten right now before I even utter it. And we pray that the seeds sown today find good soil. And everybody said? Amen. 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 We're going to be diving into Luke chapter 19 today. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Don't worry if you haven't, I'm going to read it in its entirety, the first 10 verses. And if you've grown up in church, you will be really familiar with this story because it is a Sunday school classic. It's even got a song, I've been rehearsing it all week, but I won't put you through that pain and torture, even though I'm sounding a bit more like Barry White today. We don't want to uh, get people leaving the church because of my singing voice. So let me just read this, 10 verses. Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus and he was a chief tax collector and was very wealthy. Take note of that. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he stopped and he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people who saw this began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. I love this verse. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pause there. Now this sermon, as I said, it could have easily been a two-hour sermon. I'm probably going to continue this the week after Serve Sunday. I don't think we'll get through all of what I want to say today. But as I said, these past few weeks, these verses have just been sat on my spirit and I've been ruminating on them. As I said, I've heard them for many years growing up in church at Sunday school. The danger is with stories and with verses like this is you can just get so overly familiar with them and miss the absolute gold dust within them. We believe, don't we, as we say week by week, the Word is the living Word and it still communicates to us today. 
So let me set up a little bit about what is happening here and the significance of who Zacchaeus is and where he is. You see, Zacchaeus, we're told, is a chief tax collector. The Greek word is this funny looking scribble on the top. It's architeleos. Can you repeat that after me? Architeleos. And teleos we see all through the New Testament when we think of Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, sat at his booth. It says Jesus came and he saw the tax collector, Talios, who was Levi. He said, come follow me. And Matthew got up and he followed him. But this word, architeleos, is the only place in the whole of the Bible you will find this word. And the English translates it as chief tax collector. But that Greek word at the beginning, that archi, it literally means prince, ruler or first off. So it's where we get our English words like archbishop, archdiocese, archetype. It's the first among many. So it's really, really easy to think that Zacchaeus was like one of the HMRC guys, the nice gentleman who will ring you up and tell you you've got a tax rebate. That is not who Zacchaeus is at all. He was a boss. He would be far more like Don Corleone in The Godfather than he would be like the nice taxman. You see, Zacchaeus was hated and despised by his people. He was working for the overlords of the time, the Roman government, who were coming to Jericho, Jerusalem, Israel and Palestine and completely taken over. And they didn't come in just with swords and threat and violence. They came in and there was utter destruction. They killed, they tortured and they did it for fun. So Zacchaeus, working for Romans, being a chief tax collector, would work directly with his Roman overlords. He would be sat back in his mafia office. I would call him Zac the Whack. I think that would be his nickname because he would take people out. If they weren't paying up, those Jewish people would be getting concrete shoes and be thrown into the Dead Sea. This is the sort of man Zacchaeus was. And of course, The Bible doesn't tell us everything about Zacchaeus. This is the only 10 verses in the whole of the New Testament where we hear about him. It doesn't tell us about his disposition or his character. But looking into the text and finding out that he was small, I wonder, and this is complete preacher's conjecture, if maybe he was bullied as a kid and his reason for despising his own people so much was payback. You see, he had found a very big friend who could empower him to be cruel back to the people that had been cruel to him. As I say, complete preacher's liberty, but I'm just filling in some blanks. Obviously, we find out that Zacchaeus is not a nice man. And he was very wealthy. And he would be exceptionally wealthy because of where he collected tax. We're told he was in Jericho. Now, Jericho was like the Hollywood of the time. Of course, there was a hustle and bustle of Jerusalem about 15 miles away. But Jericho was an oasis city. It was known as the city of palms because there were so many palm trees. It's a famous historian called Josephus who called it a divine region, the fattest in Palestine. So much so that King Herod, do we know King Herod at the Christmas story? That King Herod, he had his winter palace in Jericho. He had outdoor swimming pools, palm trees. He was probably served grapes on a lilo and drinking pina coladas. This is the place that Jericho was, the rich the famous and the wealthy. So Zacchaeus wasn't just taking taxes off common people, he was exploiting the rich people. And what tax collectors were allowed to do if they were in favour with Rome, which of course Zacchaeus being a chief tax collector was, they were allowed to extort a little bit on the top of what was required for themselves. 
So Zacchaeus wasn't only despised for working for the Romans, he was despised because he was a thief. The people he had known and grown up with for years and years, he bullied them, he robbed them and he extorted them. We can start to get a little bit of a picture of how people would feel about Zacchaeus, can't we? And again, in verse 3, we're told one thing about Zacchaeus that goes beyond just his position or his wealth status. We're told that he's very small. He's short. But again, I think there's a metaphor in that because I don't think Zacchaeus was just short physically. I also think morally, ethically, and maybe even spiritually, Zacchaeus just didn't measure up. I'm sure he would have been a good Jewish boy growing up. He would have known the Torah. He would have known the Scriptures. He had turned his back on that. And he had gotten in so deep with Rome, he was a shadow of the Jewish boy I'm sure he would have been. So this verse that says he wanted to see who Jesus was is especially shocking. You see, Jesus, we're in Luke 19 now, Jesus' ministry has been going on for a while. He's actually on his way to the Passion to Jerusalem. He's passing through Jericho, we're told. But I am sure news of who Jesus was was like rapid fire in the region. A man who healed, not only physically, but spiritually. Deaf ears opening, blind eyes opening, dead people coming back to life. This man was coming to your town. So you can understand why there was a crowd there. Zacchaeus, I'm sure, didn't have any friends or any acquaintances in town, but I'm sure as he sat in his office with the window propped open in the city of Palms, he would have heard the mutter and the whisper of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. His ears would have pricked up. I imagine him rushing out of his office door, pushing and elbowing and kicking through the crowd to try and see this man who maybe could give him something he had never had before. Love, respect and an audience. Why do we know this? Because as we see Jesus through the Gospels, he wasn't always in the synagogue. He wasn't with the religious folk, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the pastors and the prophets and the priests. He was with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the robbers and the thieves, and he accepted them. Do you know for someone who's lonely, who could have absolutely everything the material world could ever offer, having that one thing, that acceptance, that thing, relationship that humans crave for would make all the difference. See, he had everything he could ever want, except that one thing, acceptance and relationship. And I think this tells us that some of the people that we think are furthest away from meeting Jesus could be some of the people that are most desperate to see him. Now, I'm sure if we could think with that description of Zacchaeus in and around our lives, it might be a landlord, it might be a boss, it might be a colleague, it might be a cousin, it might even be your parents, but someone who you just don't like, who has robbed you, extorted you, abused you, Do you know that person who you think could be so far away from Jesus could be at a critical crossroads in their lives without you even knowing it and are desperate to see who Jesus was? Isn't that amazing? Maybe that person who you dislike so much is on the cusp of a revelation of the Son of God, of the Messiah. So Zacchaeus runs out and as I say, he's elbowing and he's pushing past. The crowd would have been absolutely thronging. I am sure there would have been the smell of BO. There would have been children chattering, running around feet and elbows, pushing and squirming. And Zacchaeus, I imagine, as he got there, the crowd would have looked at him and would have pushed tighter together. This is the one time they could get their own back on Zacchaeus. He wanted something and it was in their power to stop it and they closed ranks. So let's talk about the crowd for a little while. 
You see, we're talking about metaphors of Zacchaeus being small. The crowd to me is a metaphor, and go with me on this, for the church. The church. The tall, upstanding, righteous people who have got it all together. The people who know their Bible, say their prayers, who follow Jesus around. You see, it wouldn't have been a surprise where Jesus was. As I said, Jesus was making waves all throughout the region. And I think people would have had his itinerary. People would have been following from the moment he woke up. The crowds absolutely flocked around Jesus. They encircled him. They kept him in the middle. They moved with him. Anyone on the fringes had no hope of seeing who Jesus was. People like Zacchaeus, the short people, the people who don't measure up, the people who don't have it all together. The people who maybe stand at our traffic lights outside church, the people who walk past and they hear the joyful noise and think, I don't fit in there. You see, the very reason the church exists from its inception is for those outside of it. That is the very reason why we exist. We don't exist to be a holy huddle on a Sunday where we have some great worship songs and we have an inspiring message to give us goosebumps. The reason the church exists is to propagate the message of Jesus and to help people see who Jesus is. You see, all Zacchaeus could do standing at the fringes is would hear about what other people could see. And I think even for some church people, maybe you've been brought up in church for 50 years, but you've never seen Jesus. You've heard about him. You heard what he looks like through the eyes of your mom or your gran or your friend or your aunt or your uncle or your cousin or your mates, but you've never seen who Jesus is. And we have an amazing privilege and opportunity, church, knowing Jesus and seeing him for ourselves. But the question I want to ask you is who could we be blocking from seeing who Jesus is? Who could we be blocking? Who do we keep quiet around about this amazing salvation message we have? Maybe it is that work colleague. I'm not going to talk about church or work because it's embarrassing. Maybe that person who is at the brink, the marriage has fallen apart, finances down the swanee, hasn't got anything left. You are the light of the world in that office block and you've just kept quiet. You can see who Jesus is and the small person who's behind you completely blocked. You see, church, we were birthed, we were given and we were governed by the Holy Spirit to go to the world with the message of salvation. We are, the Bible says, the hope of the world. But unfortunately, I think particularly in our 21st century secular society, church has become more of a huddle thing rather than a let's go thing. You see, rather than being the hope of the world, we have made, I think, a lot the church the hope of our worlds. No longer is that hope of the world for everyone and anyone. It is the hope for our world, for our Sundays, for our meetings. You see, we love our churches, don't we? Especially when the heating's on. It's a bit nippy this morning when the worship's playing, when your favourite song comes on, when the bridge of oceans begins to play and you get the goosebumps and everything is good and dandy and the preacher's on fire and it feels good and we go out the door and nothing ever changes. You see, it's become a convenience thing, not a life-saving thing. Church was never meant to be convenient. If anything, it was meant to be inconvenient. And what we can learn from this story with Zacchaeus is that sometimes the barrier to Jesus in people's lives aren't a theological issue, aren't even a cultural issue. Sometimes the issue is us. Wow. Sometimes the issue is us. And please understand, church, this isn't a challenging message I'm preaching to you. This is a message that I am living and preaching to myself. 
Because so often, even as a pastor of a church, it's very, very easy for me to turn up and do church. It's very, very easy to keep my social circles just with church people. Staff team are all saved, well, most of them. It's a questionable few. Elders are all saved. Leadership team are all saved. Everyone I do life with is all saved. But I am called to go on mission. I'm not called to sit in a building and preach and to keep Christians happy. I am called to equip, I believe, my calling, the saints for service, to go out into the world and be the hope of the world and not just the hope for your world. Now, it's a really famous quote, and I remember hearing it probably when I was about nine or ten years old, and it's stuck with me ever since. And again, if you've been in and around church for any length of time, you would have heard this quote. But it still cuts me as deeply now at 32 years old than it did when I was nine or ten. And it's a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. It says this, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Let me say that one more time. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Remember, Christians are meant to be little Christs. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And reading this quote afresh this week, it just hit me that really when we go out into the world, if we ask the average person down in the Luton Town Centre, and I'm sure you, Seth, and the team, you'll back me up as you go out there every week and talk about Jesus. If you ask people about who Jesus is and what the church is, one of the first things that will come to their mind is judgmental. It's judgmental. Why? Because we're no more for what we are against than what we are for. Remember, Jesus told us what the two most important commandments were. Love God, love people. I think a lot in the UK, in America, the Western side of society today, we're no more for loving God, loving ourselves and loving our churches. You see, our neighbours in this society we live in, many of us don't even know our next door neighbours. We live in this very disjointed society where we work 20, 30 miles away. We do life online. We don't know the people around us anymore. But Jesus told us that everybody is our neighbour. We have made church people our neighbours. We love each other really, really well. Why? Because we've all got things in common. Even if we're culturally different, ethnically different, financially different, we all love Jesus and that's our common ground. But what happens when someone walks through our doors who stinks, who is poor, who makes a noise and a racket and comes and sits next to you? Do we love our neighbour then? I'm glad you do, that's good. So I remember this happening in my home church and I felt so uncomfortable. I was a ministry in training at the time. I felt so uncomfortable. I didn't know what to do with this person who didn't know who Jesus was, who didn't know the worship songs, who didn't look the way that they should look in church. And I have been so, I think, convicted these past months about being salt and light in the world, about being the hope of the world and trying to change the stereotype of what people think church is. Now, we are, I think, and of course I'm biased, I think we're a, a running start because I think LCF is a house of grace. I think LCF has people from all backgrounds, all different colours, nationalities, ethnicities, all different journeys in their faith, partly due to the long-standing commitment of our leaders, our past pastors. We've heard this this year about Azalea. You know, Azalea go out and help women on the street who are just find themselves in so desperate need. And that was birthed from our previous pastors, uh, Alan and Kathy West. The, this house has a heart for mission and justice. And I am so, so precious and precarious, I think, about protecting that. 
Because I think the danger is we can slip into doing all this stuff well, we can do the online well, we can do the sermons well, we can do the worship well, but forget the Zacchaeuses who are on the fringes of the crowd. We serve each other really, really well, but what about the sacrifice it takes to serve the disenchanted, the lost, the hurting and the broken? And this is exactly what happened with Zacchaeus. He's at the fringe of the crowd there, packing tight in. And as I said, I do think there's some malice there as well. I don't think they were doing this unintentionally. Again, this is preacher's conjecture. I think they were looking behind, seeing who it was and barring their arms. We are going to get our own back on this person who has hurt us, who has robbed us, who has thieved from us. We are going to get our own back on this man who doesn't deserve. But what does Zacchaeus do? Look at this, verses four to seven. So Zacchaeus ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So we came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter. Pay attention to verse seven. They began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. You see, the crowd, the church, turned on Jesus. They turned on the person they were meant to be following. They turned on the person who all the ruckus was about. And this is what happens in our churches when the sacred programs start to affect where Jesus is leading. And church, churches won't survive when they take their eyes off Jesus. They might survive for five years, for 10 years, for 20 years. But once the mission is gone, once the eye contact has been broken with the Saviour, you begin to die. And I love Zacchaeus was the only one who thought with ingenuity because there were people in the crowd who couldn't see as well. People who had done the Jesus thing for a while now, had followed him for a while, they'd lost sight of who Jesus was amongst the other people pushing and shivering. But the person who was least like Jesus, who was least likely to be part of the crowd, found a new way to see who he was. And what did the crowd do? Did they say, wow, look at what Zacchaeus managed to do. Goodness me, out of all these people, Jesus only stopped for this person who did something different. No, it says that they began to mutter and call him a sinner. You see, what the crowd were doing in that moment, they were judging Zach's present motive by his past actions. They were looking at what Zacchaeus was doing and straight away they thought this man could not be genuine. We know who he is. We know where he's from. We know what he's done for us. He must be out to swindle Jesus. You see, from a distance, they thought they knew exactly what was happening, but they didn't know at all. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. And again, another danger in the church, we can get so preoccupied about what everyone else is doing and forget the condition of our own hearts. We can get righteously angry, righteously justified, we think in our minds, angry and fed up with Jesus blessing the person who doesn't deserve it and actually forget the condition of our own hearts. Jesus, of course, talks about this in Matthew 7, 5, doesn't he? He says, guys, to the Pharisees, the pastors, the preachers of the days, you are judging these people for the specks in their eyes and you need to realise there's a massive plank in yours. You're so preoccupied about what that person is doing and trying to judge why they're doing it and forgetting that actually you've got an issue yourself. You see, we're very, very good as humans doing this. We don't like to look inward. We fill our life up with stuff, with hobbies, with money, with relationships, with distractions, because actually when we're by ourselves and we begin to look inward, especially when the Holy Spirit is present in our lives as followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit does not leave us where we are. 
He can't leave us where we are. He continues to prod and poke for our good. Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord disciplines us as a father because He loves us. I remember getting disciplined by my mum and dad growing up and I didn't like it. Now as a parent, with hindsight, I understood why my mum didn't like me playing with the gas hob. I understood why my dad didn't let me chase my brother with a hammer. I was disciplined for it in the moment, but it was for my own good. And church, it's really, really easy, especially when we've been in church for a long time to get distracted about the new people coming in who we don't think measure up, who actually we see God blessing and get irritated with them and forget we've got our own journey and our own heart we need to look at. I love the word the New Testament translates there as muttered. The Greek word could also be translated as grumbled. And here's the definition of, of muttered. It's to say something in a low or barely audible voice, especially in dissatisfaction or irritation. And I think Luke is really, really clever with his words here. He doesn't say some of the crowd muttered. He doesn't say the religious part of the crowd muttered. He says all of the crowd muttered. You see, when you're in a crowd, if one person does something, it becomes contagious. Herd mentality, which can be really, really good, but also really, really negative. Someone says something loud and the crowd begin to pick it up. We all start to go in a direction we don't want to go. We start to pick up things and we start to change our mindset and our thinking because we're thinking, well, if the majority are doing this, then it is right. And all the crowd began to mutter. I don't think they were muttering because Zacchaeus was particularly sinful, which of course he was. I don't think they were muttering because actually they thought Zacchaeus didn't deserve this. Maybe they did, but I think they muttered because they were jealous. They were absolutely jealous. They were dissatisfied. Look at that definition. They were irritated. Why? Because they got up at the crack of dawn. They waited for Jesus on the roadside. They had crowded around him. They had begged him to stop just to have a conversation. Jesus, please talk to me. I have this issue and I think you could fix it. And Jesus brushes them off. Remember, Jericho is a place he's just passing through. He's not planning to stay. But the one person he stops for is the least likely out of everybody. Least likely. Sinner, dirty, unclean, cheater, thief. And the crowd think they know better than Jesus. Why is he stopping for him? Do they not know he's a sinner? Jesus didn't just stop. He invited himself over for dinner. He didn't even invite himself. He told Zacchaeus. I must come to your house. And again, I see this happen in Christendom all the time. I'm not talking particularly about LCF here. But we mutter when God begins to bless. We get envious, we get jealous, we grumble because actually we have done everything right. We know the memory verses, we know the songs, we go to live group, we even go to Monday Night Alive every single week. But the person who barely comes to church person who's had an addiction problem, the person who ran off with another woman five years ago and he's now trying to claim his life back but deserves actually worse. He is the person being blessed. Spiritual gifts are thrown through him. He's the one seeing healings. He's the one having angels turn up in his bedroom. Why, Lord, not me? We mutter. Muttering is contagious. Let's not be a house that ever mutters and just glorifies. See, we don't like it when we perceive someone who gets something they don't deserve. We don't like it. And it's often because we think we deserve it instead. Whether it's a job promotion, whether it's a church thing, whether it's someone who's been given the title of life group leader, but you've been in the life group longer. 
someone who's been given the opportunity to preach, but goodness me, they can't even speak while they've been given the opportunity to preach. Someone who's got a load of inheritance from your mom and you didn't get it, mutter, mutter, mutter. But actually, when we go back to the beginning, we go back to the Gospels, we look at the character of Jesus. This is exactly who Jesus was. I want you to take a moment and think, if you got what you really deserved, what would that look like? Because I bet it's much worse than what you're facing now. The whole epitome of the salvation and gospel message, the kingdom of heaven being here now, is one of grace and truth. Grace that you get something you do not deserve. And truth sometimes, let me tell you, hurts. It's not always easy. You get what you don't deserve, but sometimes it's a bit of a struggle to get there. I remember growing up in the, um, in the church, as I said, late 90s in Sunday school. And there was a band around at the time called DC Talk. Does anyone remember DC Talk? What would people do if they... Luke knows it. Say then I'm a Jesus freak. Okay, you're not really Christians. Get out of the church. You're not really Christians. <laughs> but I remember watching DC Talk live. And they all had these funny wristbands on. And I was trying to see what, what they were, you know, in... In church youth group culture at the time, you all wanted to be like DC Talk. I even tried to grow dreads. It didn't really work. If you see my hair, it's very thin and blonde, uh, like one of the lead singers. But they were all wearing these bracelets and the bracelet said WWJD. Do you remember those? WWJD. They were like the Christian fashion accessory. See, everyone else was out wearing Metallica tops. I was wearing Jesus Freak with a WWJD bracelet. And the sad thing is, I thought I was really cool doing it as well. Anyway, another story for another time. But what those bracelets were meant to do was to remind us that in situations we find ourselves in, we should act like Jesus as Christians. What would Jesus do is what they stood for. And I want to tell you, church, that I've I've actually gone back and ordered on Amazon this week a new batch of these bracelets. I just think they're brilliant. Not for a particular fashion accessory. I don't think they're particularly cool, but I love the reminder. What would Jesus do? And actually, when you think about it, in a nutshell, In a nutshell, the Christian life, being a disciple of Jesus, being a follower of Christ, is simply this little phrase, what would Jesus do? If Jesus were you, in your place, when you are, where you are, at home, at work, what would He do with the resource, talents and giftings that you've got? That is exactly what you're called to do. See, the crowd are around Zacchaeus. They're saying, does Jesus not know who this man is? He's gone to be the guest of a sinner, mutter, 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 rippling through the crowd. What does Jesus do? None of it at all. He doesn't call him sinner. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, let's come down and have a chat. Jesus just calls him Zacchaeus. He calls him his name. I love this. It sounds really simple, doesn't it? Well, of course he calls him his name. But actually, I don't think Zacchaeus was called Zacchaeus for a long time, even by his Roman overlords. As I said, if he was called anything, it was probably Zac the Whack, because he was going to take you out. But there's a lot of meaning in a name, particularly in the Jewish culture. You see, what Zacchaeus means in Hebrew is the absolute opposite of everything Zacchaeus did. You see, Zacchaeus means righteous and pure. It's almost like a joke, isn't it? It's ironic. The least righteous, pure person in the whole vicinity is the one called righteous and pure. And we don't see any interaction before Jesus gets to Zacchaeus with Zacchaeus, but he knows exactly who he is. He walks up to him, he stops. I can imagine the crowd bumping into each other, getting inconvenienced, getting wound up, working each other up as he looks up and he calls down Zacchaeus and he tells him, I must come to your house today. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us something we already know. 
that Jesus knows you absolutely intimately. He doesn't call you by your past mistakes. He doesn't call you what other people call you. He doesn't call you by what you think you're defined by. He calls you your true identity. See, by definition, really, in our culture, a lot of what we do in our past defines where we go in our future, whether that be exam results or courses we take. If you want to be a marine biologist, it's no good probably studying English literature at university. If you want to be a mechanic, it's probably not very good studying, um, I don't know, creative writing. See, a lot of what we do dictates where we go, but it's completely different with Jesus. Again, it's a topsy-turvy kingdom, the gospel message. It throws everything on his head. It flips it up. You see, Jesus allows our heart to define us. He knows the inner longings. Even if what we're acting out isn't um, the right thing or the pure thing or the honourable thing, Jesus can see the deepest yearning of our heart. And as I was looking at this and thinking about the crowd and Zacchaeus, as I said, we're not going to get to the end of the story today. I've got two minutes left. I just had this sensation, this this, this word drop in my spirit that as the church, we have a huge opportunity. We know we're called to be the physical representation of Jesus here on earth. We are empowered, the Bible tells us, for mission by the Holy Spirit who comes and He equips us to go out and tell people about the hope of the world, Jesus Himself. But we have this ability, church, to either do a Donald Trump and build a wall or make a walkway. We sing Waymaker, Jesus, you are the Waymaker. But actually, Jesus calls us to make a way too. Very, very easy to get tight around Jesus. And I think sometimes we think we're doing Jesus a favour. We're protecting Jesus. We're keeping Him boxed up in our walls. We are protecting this invading culture that is secular, is postmodern, post-Christian, doesn't want anything to do with the spiritual things. But Jesus does not need your protection. Jesus needs you on mission. We're going to invite our band back now. We've obviously been talking today about sacrifice, remembering those brave men and women who went decades uh, ago from the First World War, all the wars through history now in the UK. We're remembering those who've given the ultimate sacrifice. And I think sometimes we will never have to make that sacrifice. I think as we look at our future, we probably will never have to go off to war and put our bodies on the line. Actually, sometimes the sacrifice we need to make is just a minor inconvenience. But remember the message and the hope And the gospel that you carry is literally the hope of the world. Literally. Very, very easy to hype up in church and pretend that this message we've got will change everything. There's no pretending about it. If you truly know Jesus, you know what the message of Jesus can do. See, the truth is, as we read this story, it's very, very easy to identify with the crowds, the church gathering around Jesus. But in reality, every single one of us at some point in our lives, and maybe even now, was Zacchaeus. We didn't measure up. We couldn't get through. We couldn't see Jesus. We were desperate for a Saviour. We couldn't get to His feet. But you might be the person for the next person coming along who can help do that. Sometimes people are desperate to get to the feet of Jesus. They just can't get there. They need a piggyback. They need someone with a loud voice. They need someone who knows the culture of the church to part the crowd to get them through not see a preacher, not see a worship team, but to see Jesus for who He is, to give revelation of His goodness and His grace and His mercy. So I wonder, church, if you can stand with us. We're going to sing this song. And in just a moment, we're going to take communion together as well. 
If you're in the building and haven't got a little communion cup, if you're downstairs, they're just at the back on either side here. And if you're upstairs, they're just on the front either side here. During this song, please do go and grab one of those. And Becky's going to come up in just a moment and lead us in communion. Thank you, Lisa.